Welcome to the Journey of a Christian Dad podcast. I'm your host, Dan Lewis. Who is the spiritual leader of your family? Is it you, your pastor, your spouse, the media? Do you know? I did. And sadly, no one was taking responsibility to lead our family. Well, friends, someone needs to take that job, and that man is you. You may not feel qualified, and some days I don't. With the help of God and a community of dads helping each other on their journey, you can be the leader your family deserves. We welcome you to the Journey of the Christian Dad podcast. Want to homeschool, but worried about your child's socialization? Classical Conversations believes education is best experienced together. That's why Classical Conversations provides homeschool families with local communities for opportunities for socialization, support, and encouragement. In community, a trained licensed director guides both students and parents alike through a proven Christ-centered curriculum rooted in the classical model. To find a Classical Conversations community near you, visit classicalconversations.com slash dadjourney. And now, back to the show. All right, guys. Welcome back. Welcome back. This is absolutely unbelievable to me. I've got to meet R.A. Dickey in person. Uh, but nevertheless, as a kid who loved baseball, uh, as you guys know, loyal listeners, uh, Cardinals is my team. And it was absolutely awful the year of 2010 when this mystical knuckleball pitcher came out of nowhere and was pitching for the Mets of all teams. And they're like, I'm thinking, please, God, allow this knuckleballer to, you know, fail soon because <laughs> he's got a few good games in a row, a few more good games in a row. This thing seems like it might work. And I remember him getting drafted and I remember he was, you know, not the greatest pitcher in the world, but I don't know what just happened, but turn the tide, get rid of this guy, get him off the mats and, and or, or allow him to keep failing like one of the two, but, but don't allow him to be a star pitcher and please God, don't let him win the 2012 Cy Young. So <laughs> you've heard it a million times, but all right, Dickie, you won the 2012 Cy Young Award, and man, I'm thankful to have you on the Journey of a Christian Dad podcast. Oh, I'm so glad that we could find time to do this. I think it's incredibly important. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's so funny how God uses all things for the good, even a New York Met pitcher winning the Cy Young Award. <laughs> <laughs> In 2012, I thought that was impossible. <laughs> I did too for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So funny. Uh, I saw you speak the, you know, maybe a few months ago and you're like, yeah, I went in the Cy Young. It was cool and all, but it wasn't all that big a deal for me or whatever your words were. But I was like, what did he just say? <laughs> That's the new, that the old RA would have, that would have been the pinnacle of life. Right. But the, 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 the ever changing, hopefully being grown every day, RA understands that that's just, you know, that's just a, a piece to share with people to be able to talk about how great God is, you know? Yeah. How cool is that? How cool is that? We had a, a guy, a guy named Chad Williams. He wrote a book called seal of God. And he was on like the first episode I ever did. And he became a Navy seal, which was his pinnacle. Oh. And he said, I was never so depressed as like the next day or two nights later. Yeah. There wasn't another, yeah, there wasn't another pinnacle. Man. Yeah. Can you imagine? winning the Cy Young and then becoming ultimately depressed and spiral and out of control. 
I, I can absolutely relate to that. You know, and I, I there I suffered a ton of failure um, throughout my career. Really, first ten years, you mentioned it early. You know, I wasn't very good. I'm very very mediocre. Uh, I went back and took a look at your ERAs yeah. and an ERA <laughs> above five with consecutive seasons. Oh man, on it was and on and on. It was not good. And that was that was when I was a conventional pitcher. You know, I didn't I didn't turn to the knuckleball until you know, basically 2005, I had always thrown it as part of my repertoire of pitches, but never full-time, never 90% of the time in an outing. And as a conventional pitcher in the AL West, I just struggled and struggled. And so really grappled with my identity and my value as a human being, because, you know, I was looking through the wrong lens the whole time, really um, chasing something that was hollow. And, and it took me a long time and getting to the end of myself in a lot of different ways to figure out, um, that that's where God wanted me anyway. It's just open-handed and, and, um, on my knees, that posture of being on my knees and, and just asking every day for him to show up, uh, in some way. And he always would. Um, now that doesn't mean like every day was great from then on, but it certainly, I certainly didn't feel as alone. And I would say that's where, you know, I would be, I would always get attacked by the enemy, uh, early on in my career in particular, because if I had a bad outing or, you know, I was like, I was like a roller coaster, man. And, and, you know, and I, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't fueled by addiction. Like a lot of people when they want to medicate when things don't go well. Um, but I, I would get super depressed and lonely and, you know, just, just dark, it's dark. It's how I could probably describe it best. And so, you know, that took a long time and a lot of growth and a lot of people who loved me well to come alongside me and help me see, see it differently. Mm. I hear you keep talking about that over and over and over again, the people that came around you. And it seemed like there was always somebody right around the corner for you that maybe showed up in an unexpected way or whatever it was and kind of brought you to the next step. Yeah. You know, I think it was both really, you know, I think it was, you know, the stability of a, a good woman too, you know, who had been there the whole time, uh, and been, you know, loyal and, and kind and, um, faithful and like all of it. So there was that for sure. So there was, there was always that to bounce off of, which at the end of the day, probably saved me in a lot of different ways. Um, but I also, I also hungered for like male companionship, like iron sharpening iron, you know, and, and not really knowing how to do that, you know, um, because, you know, I just didn't have the equipment from my early experiences as an eight, nine year old and going through a lot of sexual trauma and all that stuff. I didn't know how to connect with another, another man very well. And so that is the piece that you reference. Like people would always show up that would say the right thing or be available or um, just be there. Um, and that, that was something that was very new for me. And it really helped me in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I love the love the kid in high school. Uh, you transferred, went to a private school, left your uh, kind of financial uh, situation. You're you know you're in a lower lower income situation. Switched over to maybe I'd like financially elite, uh, which I did too when I, I switched from a kind of meager place to a, a place where a 14 year old kid had his own Porsche with personalized plates, and the dad bought him the one parking space that the school auctioned off. No mercy. Yep. I'm like, this you, is you different. Like, <laughs> it was like, different. He's not old enough to have a license. <laughs> it was different. I, I was, I was getting a personalized uh, license plate from 
my box of frosted flakes for my bike. <laughs> right. I can't remember, people probably won't remember that, but you could send off for like a personalized little mini plate that you could put on the back of your bike. That's what I was, that's where I was coming from over to what you just described. And it was a whole different world for sure. Yeah. Yeah. In your book, you mentioned the the polo symbols on the shirt and the Knights of the round table. And it was yeah, yeah. certainly that same transition for me where I'm like, what is happening? Like, what are these guys talking about and businesses that these people own and some guy got drunk at an auction and bought a parrot, you know, a couple oh, grand yeah. on a parrot that he wasn't expecting to buy. Like, that's nice to have money just falling out of your pocket that you don't care about. And on parrots. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Hey, honey, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the, the, the kid in high school, the guy that kind of uh, maybe you're even partially afraid of because you'd been in a bunch of fights and different things. And then he shows up and you're thinking, man, this guy's chiseled and tough and he keeps hanging around. I sure hope he don't want to fight me. Well, you know, I don't know if I was afraid because coming from the public school system in Nashville over to the affluent kind of private school, there were a lot of, you know, I think people were probably more afraid of me just because of where I'd come from. And, you know, and I was over there to play sports too, you know, like that was a reason for me right. to get over there. That was, you know, if someone saw me play and thought, man, that might be a good fit over here. And so I was scholarshiped over there and that was helpful for me. But I, I was kind of the guy that was coming in that probably everybody was looking at, uh, not in an alienating way, but certainly in a very, very curious way because uh, I was just, you know, I just came from a different culture a little bit, you know. And so I wouldn't say I was afraid of people down there, I think. And I certainly wasn't. And this is not I'm not I'm not boasting about this. I think it's bad. But I certainly was not afraid of uh, a phys- physical confrontation, which is why I kind of, you know, I, I acted out a lot in that way um, growing up, you know, trying to feel value because so I, because I could enforce my will upon somebody, you know, that's not good. And I, I'm talking about when I was 11 and 12 and 13 years old. And so that, that part wasn't a big issue for me. Uh, but I think I was mostly afraid of not people, but just uh, the experience of a thing. Um the foreignness of a thing, uh, you know, even now I, I find myself really craving um, routine and structure and habit. And when I get outside that, I can feel like, you know, a little bit of twinge of anxiety. And that's kind of where I was perpetually over there was I'm out of, I'm out of my, my element here. And that's what I was afraid of more than anything and afraid of failing. Like, you know, like I was afraid of failing. Uh, it was a time in my life when, you know, a lot of things were coming together uh, in a negative way, you know, um, having suffered sexual abuse early in my life really didn't develop the, like I said before, the equipment to be able to do relationship well. And so that would manifest in toxic ways in relationship. And my parents were divorced and I was kind of the latchkey kid running around, uh, living with different people and grandparents and aunts and uncles and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, it was a real kind of tough time in my life. And I found a lot of value in, in, in my athletic um, being good at, at, at athletics. And so that's where I, you know, that toxic journey of, of seeing myself through that lens and my value, uh, st- probably started was that I would turn to that, uh, when I was in pain a lot, you know, um, so football, basketball, baseball, I played all three at the high school and grew up playing those three. And that was kind of my sanctuary growing up. And so I, I that was who I was. Yeah. Yeah. When I saw you speak, uh, 
you spoke about the sexual abuse when you were young and transitioned to keeping people at arm's length. And you Mm. also felt less than, and I think a lot of people in the room, you know, related to that because a lot of people can feel like they're not worthy of certain things or uh, feel like they are less than other people in comparison and a bunch of different things like that. So, and I wasn't a believer at the time, you know, when I came, when I came to the NBA Montgomery Bell Academy, which is the private school, you know, I, I didn't know who Jesus was. I didn't have any relationship, didn't know anything about, um, you know, the Bible or, uh, the stories that the Bible taught or all that. Like I didn't, I didn't have any real education around that. Um, other than like, I occasionally would go to church with my grandmother. Um, but it was much more just to be with her. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really pay attention. And so when I got to the, there, you know, I, I had no, I had no real, uh, there was nothing to really guide me in, in my, in my path. Like I didn't have anything to bounce off of other than athletics. That was my guide, right? Like that was my idol. Um, and myself, you know, I, w- I was my own idol and so was um, athletics and I was pretty good at athletics. And so I got a lot of validation from that. Yeah, absolutely. Hey guys, quick side note, grandma took RA to church. So at least he had a little bit of something there. So when you're that guy and you see the opportunity to bring a kid with you, whose parents aren't going to bring them, look for the opportunity, bring somebody else's kid. And, you know, who knows what that changes or plants in that kid's life, or maybe that kid starts coming all the time and then the parents show up. So you can make a big difference by just that small thing. So pretty cool. Grandma took you. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was, you know, she was probably, you know, my parents did the best they could with what they had, you know, I didn't have a real good relationship with my father and my mom. Um, I shared with, with the men that day that you saw me, you know, that she, she was in and out of rehab. Uh, we have a great relationship now and she's been sober for a long, long time and she's incredible. But at that time in my life, um, I didn't have any real model for how to behave, how to act, what to do. And so I was coming up with it on my own and I was great at pretending, but my grandmother offered, you know, just a, a, a little bit of stability and a little bit of love and kindness. And, you know, we'd wait, I'd spend the night at her house on Saturday night and um, my grandfather would drop her and I off at church, Western church of Christ. We'd go in, in there and I'd sit beside her and just be with her. And then we'd come home and have breakfast together. And like, it was just relationship, right? Like that was a real, that's what it was about for me at that time is relationship. And, you know, little did I know that going to church with her, you know, a few times planted a little bit of a seed for sure. I was soft-hearted when it came to that stuff. You know, I was not at all standoffish to the idea of who God was or what he could, what he had done for me, you know, and that was a big part of it. Yeah, that's something we do is relationship, invite somebody, hey, you want to go, you know, to church? And then right afterwards, we'll we'll catch some lunch or we'll attend yeah. Donuts Sunday or something like that and make it more yeah. about relationship and less about, you know, the monumental thing of showing up to a to a church. <laughs> yeah, yep. Yeah. And uh, but yeah, being there with relationship first and then developing it from there and hopefully having people ask a few questions or look at your life and you know, that type of thing. Something I, I love about you when I hear you speak, when I, uh, you know, read your book, I think, you know, what a smart guy, what an intelligent guy. I was thinking, wow, what a, what a great writer. And then come to find out uh, you love English and that was a subject you studied. <laughs> so yeah. that was, that was a My, talent you had. And I, I, I uh, you know, I, I had always found that um, I was all the way, all, all the, all the time when I was a child, um, I was always looking for relief, right. In some way. So 
a lot of times I, when I get on a court or a field or a mound, that was relief for those two hours. Um, and I also felt that same kind of relief when I would write. And I was like that early on. Um, you know, God just put that in in me and born. And I didn't really grow up around any writers or, you know, it wasn't part of my life. In fact, I didn't really like reading up until I got into, you know, my junior or senior year of, of high school. Um, but I loved writing and felt relief. Uh, sometimes when I could put words on a page, it was my outlet a, a lot of times. And so to deal with a lot of the pain internally that I was feeling as a teenager and growing up, um, I would put on, on a page and that's ultimately how I wrote my book. You know, I had journals dating all the way back to my eighth grade year at MBA. And wow. so I was able to go in those moments back to those times and get real, you know, I didn't have to sensationalize anything because, you know, it was all there on paper and I'd always kept them and still have them and still write. And so journaling was a big part of my, my life for a long time. Uh, and, and there's something real permanent about the written word. And, um, I felt like once I got something down, you know, it could, it could get off my back a little bit now, because it was not the, ultimately it wasn't, it was just relief, right? It was just a short-term relief. You know, those things would always start creeping back in because I didn't have any real sustaining joy. Um, and that was, that was tough, but that did give me some relief writing. Yeah, I love that. The habits, the rituals, the things we do and build positive. Yeah. So the, the writing is something that I think a lot of guys struggle with. Yeah, you know, I don't, I th- it might be, I don't know. I mean, I speculate sometimes that it's how we're wired as men, you know, like it takes, not that we're not thoughtful or intentional, but we have to learn that attribute most of the time. And it's not something, it's like throwing a knuckleball. Like I had to throw a million reps before I understood kind of how to make it do what it does. And, you know, you just got to practice those things, sitting down for 15 minutes and being intentional with a thing that you might not feel like is important, but it actually is really, really important. You know, that takes practice and building, building habits and things like that. And so I would, you know, if you read my book, you know, that like after I would have an outing, sometimes I'd keep a diary and I'd go home in that, that night and write about it, whether it was, I got blasted or I did great. And I would put those diary entries throughout the book just to bounce off of, to give the reader an idea of kind of what the feelings were after you gave up seven runs to the Cardinals. Or, <laughs> are you shut, Good job. Are you shut, Good job. Right. Or you shut them out. So um, like, like you said, you know, I've always appreciated the written word and it's been real helpful in my life. So you brought up the knuckleball. Uh, tell us about like that transition. Uh, you know, I, I know the story, but I'll let you let you tell it when. Uh, and, yeah. and if you if you include the part where you realize that, that pitching wasn't your thing. Well, it was scary. That's the like the transition was scary. I'd been a conventional pitcher was drafted as a conventional pitcher. You know, I was a hard thrower, you know, I threw, I threw mid nineties when I got drafted in 1996 and with the, by the Rangers and the first 10 years of my career, I was just a, like, like we talked about earlier, like I was okay. And I would have flashes of being good enough for them to promote me a little bit, but I could never really sustain anything anywhere. And, um, got to the big leagues up and down as a conventional pitcher. So I got a little over two years of service time out of 10, as a conventional pitcher in the major leagues, but it just, my velocity started to decrease and being in the AL West, uh, it was really hard because there's a lot of great hitting teams and I was getting shellacked. And so when I was in the big leagues, I had a particularly poor outing and got called in the office. And I knew like, was that, was that Vladimir? I'm probably, yeah. I like, I was, I threw a fastball away to Vladimir Guerrero and uh, I'll never forget 
And it was like, and it was good coming off your hand, oh, right? I felt great. I mean, it felt like I was in college again. And I looked up at the board and it was like 87 miles an hour. And I thought, uh-oh, that's not good. And he hit a ball so hard. By the time I got my glove up, it was like ricocheting off the back wall. And I knew at that point, like, it's probably, it's probably ain't gonna work much longer. And so I got called into the office after the game and Buck Showalter was my manager at the time, and Oral Hershiser was my pitching coach, and a guy named Mark Connor, who I love so much. It was my bullpen coach, and they were all in there with the general manager, and they said, hey, R.A., and I thought the next words out of their mouth were going to be, we're, sit, we're, we're releasing you, not even sending you down, but we're releasing you. But you know what came out of their mouth next really changed the course of my life, and, and Buck said, we think that you could be a really good knuckleball pitcher, and we want to send you down to the minor leagues to try to figure that out. Um, and I thought, well, that was different. And in the moment, I think I think the hair probably stood up on the back of my neck and my ego was trying to get in the way. And this was a real kind of God moment for me, I think. I mean, all our moments are God moments, but when you really feel like it, he stepped in because I felt my ego kind of come over me like, you can't tell me that I can't do something, right? Like I, right. My, whole, my whole life, I've been able to do it and I'm going to keep being able to do it. Now, I might've had a setback here, but I'm going to, I'm going to figure it out. And if you release me, I'll just go somewhere else. And, you know, I'll show you, I'll show you. Yeah. And so I could feel that coming over me and about, about a quarter through that feeling, I felt that arrest and just, I felt this real peace come over me. And I just, I said, that sounds like a good plan. And I don't even know to this day really why I said that. Um, Cause it, I didn't think it was a good plan. <laughs> I thought it was a horrible plan, but that's what came out of my mouth. And thankfully, you know, God helped me to um, take my ego out of it and just be receptive to some people who saw something in me. I couldn't see myself. They had seen me play knuckleball catch on the side when we warmed up and they oral Hershiser. I remember walking him walking behind me a bunch of times when we were playing catch and say, man, that thing's good. You should throw that more often. And I didn't really think anything of it. Uh, you know, as my catch partner was like missing them and it was going off his leg and, you know, it just, it was dancing around everywhere and I'd throw one or two in a game, but it's just a, such a hard pitch to control that I didn't throw it a lot because I didn't want to be behind in the count. And so they said, why don't you go down and do that? And so I said, okay. And I went down to AAA and began my journey as a knuckleballer in 2005, midway through the season. So you were super stubborn person. To your benefit and to your detriment. I, I, I prefer relentless. Relentless. There we go. Todd Stottlemyre word. Relentless. Uh, so, oh, it was stubborn for sure. So you were in uh, in college hoping to get to the College World Series. I think you're maybe two games away or so from getting there. And you're, you're the starting pitcher that day. Maybe you'd pitched eight innings. Maybe you'd thrown 150 pitches, give or take. No goodness. Yeah, that, that was... Uh... When was that? That was 1993. We were trying to get the College World Series for the, for, uh, the University of Tennessee. And I'd pitched on a Thursday, I think, against the Citadel and threw seven or eight innings and, you know, probably 120, 130 pitches. And then I came back on two days rest and threw against uh, Oklahoma State. And it, that game went 11 innings and I threw 182 pitches. Yeah. And so yeah. between a four day span, you can do the math. You know, I threw well over 300 pitches, but we won. We won in extra innings, uh, three, three to one. And and Coach Delmonico tried to take me out multiple times, and we almost fought. And so it was, it was. We ended up going, but it was, it was costly because I got killed in the World Series because I just was so tired. <laughs> yeah, your coach comes to you and say, 
a good game, 150 pitches. Like we're going to turn this over to the bullpen. No, you're not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was, there was, I was not coming out without uh, making a scene. That's for sure. You finish the ninth. Hey, you're done. Finish the 10th. No, you're done. No, I'm not. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I had, I had only one more. No, I'm not in me. And then I really was, I was out. <laughs> I was not going the 11th, the 11th, believe it or not, was going to be my last inning. Okay. My goodness. That is just unreal. And then I'm thinking, as I'm hearing the story, you're going to get drafted. Like this is not good when you're going to get drafted. Yeah, no, that wasn't good. Like in this day and age, that stuff would have never happened. That was back when, you know, you couldn't look up at the board and see how hard you were throwing or the number of pitches that you had thrown. It was all just kind of gut and feel and kind of the old school way of pitching where you'd look and, you know, you'd see Nolan Ryan going 170 pitches and striking out 16 in nine innings. You know, it's that yeah. kind of that kind of mentality was still permeating through through, uh, you know, the baseball landscape. And <clears throat> so it wasn't as it would have probably put somebody in jail today but I, back got, I got a little rec league team and i got a 10 yeah. team they're young eight nine year olds and this girl uh i say to her dad we didn't have a second pitcher that day and i say to her dad i said hey uh you mind if i run her back out there for the third inning would would that be okay and he looks at me and he goes it is isn't it i said oh my well, god well i think so and he says well i certainly think so because is yeah. she tired Oh no, she wants to go the third and the fourth and the fifth. And, and I'm okay. Letting her, if you're okay, letting her, he goes, why are you asking me? I go, well, some parents would have a hard time. Yeah. You know, I'm like, she's throwing all of 25 or 30 miles an hour underhand. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I'm like, but I don't want you to hate me after today. So I figured I'd ask your permission. He's laughed. He goes, did it, has it come to this these days? I go, I think so. I'm pretty sure. Oh man. Well, multiply that by a factor of a hundred and that's about what you're working with in baseball now. And yeah, you know, you're yeah. seeing it big league level too. You got guys that can't throw 200 innings. I mean, that used to be, <clears throat> that used to be the low point, right? Like if you were a starter and you couldn't go 200 innings and you weren't going to get paid for what you did very well. So, so I came had- out that mentality. Yeah, you had uh, the craziness of getting drafted, first round draft pick. They're going to offer you eight hundred ten thousand plus some college money, so it rounded out to almost a million. They do a little thing and figure out that you don't have an ulnar collateral ligament, which means you, in your mind, you can't get Tommy John surgery, and your arm's yeah. awesome. So this is this is a win. This is fantastic. Yeah, big win. That's not how they saw it, obviously. You know, the Rangers, when they drafted me, found that I didn't have that that Tommy John ligament, that UCL in my right arm. And they reduced my bonus because of that, because they thought they drafted damaged goods. And uh, I got to the last day before I had to report to class even um, back at unit. I was drafted after my junior year of high of college. And and if I stepped foot on a campus for my senior year, I was ineligible to sign uh, from then on. So I I. Um, chose to take the abbreviated offer. They went from $810,000 down to $75,000. And I just thought, well, I'm going to bet on myself here and get my professional career going so I could get there quicker. And there was no guarantee I would ever been drafted again anyway with that condition in my arm. So I took the risk and and um, ended up getting up there as a conventional pitcher, which which in retrospect now, you know, I had to battle through quite a bit to, to get there. Um, never had the surgery. I was was never hurt. They thought I was going to have to have the surgery. <clears throat> and I was, I was asymptomatic. Like I didn't have any symptoms. Like I, 
And that might have been why I could throw 185 pitches on two days rest and not and not blow out. <laughs> so I didn't have anything in there. And I always my, my agent and I made the argument, hey man, like this is a bonus. You should get be pay, getting paid more because they don't have to worry about that. And they they used it as the opposite, obviously. So I got started with my career and ended up getting up there after six years in the minor leagues, you know, and, and just working my way up from A ball to double A to triple A and then ultimately to big leagues and then had a couple of cups of coffee up there. Uh, End up pitching, I think, five seasons over 200 innings as a conventional pitcher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was I I had runs where I was okay, you know, um, but I just couldn't sustain it. I just didn't have enough gas, and I wasn't ever. I mean, five five seasons as a 200 inning pitcher. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. As a knuckleballer, yeah. When you're knuckleballer, yeah, yeah. Yeah, as a knuckleballer, you know, I actually had six because you know the year i got called up i'd already thrown 60 innings and at triple a and then threw 178 or 180 for the mets in 2010 so that was almost 240 innings there so um you know i was real fortunate that pitch you know the knuckleball allows you to if you if you can figure it out it allows you to not have to worry about pitch counts or innings or things like that cuz you're throwing it with a lot less effort and it's much more about technique than than velocity and so that allows you to do some different things. Uh, You're throwing high seventies, low eighties. Yeah, yeah, but it, uh, you know, before I was throwing, you know, trying yeah. to throw ninety, right? Like and trying to throw ninety, <laughs> like that, that's the difference. If it was just coming out nice and easy at ninety, that's one thing. But it wasn't. I was trying to step on the gas every single pitch, and that over time just wears you out. But with a knuckleball my comfort zone was high seventies, low eighties. And so I could sit out there all day and throw that pitch uh, without much fatigue. So a lot of guys listening, played baseball, you know, through the fastball started tinkering with the, the curve ball because people told them not to, and they started figuring it all out. And then, Hey, there's this knuckleball thing that sounds mystical and isn't true. And maybe the Necro brothers were doing their thing. And you're like, Oh man, that is true. That like, maybe I can do this. And so sure. quite a few of us toyed around with that knuckleball and obviously your grandpa, you know, showed you a thing or two. Yeah. And you played yeah. with it all your life. And then you had three different guys come into your life at different times. And each one of them gave you a little something. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're like, if the last guy would have came first, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah, no, it was God's timing through and through. I mean, when I was learning the knuckleball in 05, I went down without any kind of instructor or any kind of instruction. It was just kind of go down there and figure it out. You know, you throw a pretty good one up here playing catch, but throwing one on the side, playing catch with your buddy is a whole lot different than trying to get a major league caliber hitter out and trying to hold runners with it and, and throw strikes with it and change speeds with it. And so when I went down my very first outing against the Iowa Cubs, I gave up 10 runs in one inning. I'm in one outing. So I went five innings and gave up 10 runs. And I thought, oh my God, what have I done? Right. Like this is not the journey for me. Um, thankfully, I showed up the next day and kept working and showed up the next day and kept working. There was a real, you know, consistency. Like I could, I, I always enjoyed the work. That was important. You know, I always enjoyed the work. I would commit to the work and I would work while I waited. And and I always was trying to tinker with it, throwing it off the outfield wall over and over again during batting practice, finding anybody I could play catch with with to to throw it. And I would throw multiple bullpens in between outings and live batting. Like I would do whatever I could, but I had to do it on my own, just trying to figure it out. And then the Rangers set me up with Charlie Huff. Charlie Huff was a longtime knuckleballer in the big leagues, had a great career. And I flew out to to Los Angeles and worked with him a couple of different times. Uh, and he taught me a new grip 
and a little bit of the philosophy behind that. And then I moved on to Tim Wakefield, who I had gotten up there in 2008 with the Seattle Mariners uh, just for a, a little bit of time. And uh, the Boston Red Sox happened to be playing during that time. And he reached out to me and let me watch his bullpen the day he threw it in Seattle. And he gave me a little something else uh, with my follow through and the way I released it, my release point. And then I moved on to to the master, Phil Necro, um, who won over 300 games, Hall of Famer in the, in the big leagues. And he gave me all he had. And he introduced me to using my hips a little bit more. And he was like, hey, man, you need to be throwing this pitch as hard as you can throw it and take spin off. Um, and he always, you know, he described my knuckleball as an angry knuckleball. And I thought I always that that I liked that because that's what I felt like I could do that was different, that separated me from every other knuckleballer in history was that I could throw a real hard one. Um, and he said, you need to be throwing that as hard as you can. And I wasn't doing that. I was trying to be Charlie Huff. I was trying to be Tim Wakefield. And he said, no, 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 man, you need to you need to be you. And you is throwing it hard, attacking hitters with that angry knuckleball and seeing what happens. And, you know, it took about six months really training that in. And then that was right before the 2010 season. And really the rest was history after that, you know, but it took the timing of all three of these men investing in me and at the different points of, you know, these different inflection points of my career uh, that really changed the, the course. And that, that was just, you know, and I was asking God all the, all the, you know, I had, really renewed my relationship with Christ at that time. And I came to know Christ as a, as a 14 year old kid at NBA. Um, and, you know, but I didn't really have anybody help cultivate the, the relationship piece. And so it took me a long time before I really um, got people in my life that, that helped me with that. And people came into my life without me even asking to help me with that. And so I was, I was growing as a human being over here and, you know, my vocation, what I did, uh, baseball, that, that was kind of growing too, uh, at the same time. And that's, that's no coincidence. You know, God was putting people in my life, both as a professional and as a, as just a father and a husband and a friend and a son, um, to help grow me there too. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, it wasn't always sweet and wasn't always nice, uh, there, you know, I fell down a ton, um, but had a lot of people beside me to help pick me up. And that was real important. So asking God, praying, do your thing, let God do his yeah. thing, trust God. Just the posture of it, you know, like just being and just, you know, there's a great book out there called Ego is the Enemy. Yes. And just trying to trying to take my ego out of it uh, completely and just being a lifelong learner. Like that was the key for me is just, I would try to be a sponge and absorb everything that I could from people who knew more than I did. Um, and I felt this, you know, because I had accepted Christ as a 14 year old, I had the Holy spirit and it was constantly like help reminding me to, you know, get in the word or reach out to this person or get on your knees. And I, I would just be real obedient, try to be obedient to that. And, and I would also be like this, you know, before I was like, God, I got to make it. This is who I am. I can't, you know, I can't do anything apart from this. And God was like saying, no, 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 man, I'm going to bring you to the end of yourself. And then you're going to see my, you know, what I can do. And he did. I mean, I was on, I said, I had that inflection point when, but called me in the office, I thought I was going to be released. And that was one of those moments where God was saying, Hey man, you're going to trust me because I love you. And here's an opportunity. And so I took that opportunity and tried to just a little bit at a time go like this. Now I wasn't all the way like this, but, 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 but those fists were starting to unclench a little bit. And so I would, you know, and over time it just got more and more like this, like God, 
just used me, man. Just, I just care about being a good father and a good husband and a good man. And this other stuff over here, this stuff that I thought was my identity for so long, um, that kind of just was the thing I was good at, you know? Um, and that's how it, it worked for me. And I, I understand it doesn't work like that for everybody, but I had to be willing to surrender whatever this thing over here was, this baseball thing, whatever it was, I had to surrender to the fact that God was going to use it. He had put it in my life for a reason. He had brought people in my life to really help cultivate it. And whatever it was going to become, it was going to become. And I was going to ride it out until God told me to do something different. And he told me to do something different in 2017 when I walked away from the Atlanta Braves and and I still had more gas in the tank and I could have kept going, but it was time for me to be a full-time father and husband. And, uh, but it, it took a lot of people loving on me. Like I said, at the beginning, like no, no, nobody is a self-made man or woman. And if you wake up with this sense of gratitude in the morning, it really puts your life in a whole different perspective. Like you, you get to see things through a real neat lens. If you wake up with a, a gracious spirit and one that is just thankful for opportunities and time and, uh, resources and you know it's very very helpful you have something you do in the morning to to make for sure that happens every day yeah i just breathe and 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 meditate a little bit you know and it's not long you know i, I wake up and and kind of swing my legs over the side of the bed and they're my feet are touching the floor and i'm sitting i'm sitting down on the edge of my bed and just take like five or six real deep breaths and just say thank you in between every breath and just thank you for my wife thank you for my life thank you for my my relationship with you. Thank you for whatever opportunities come my way. Thank you for, for the ability to be able to see uh, and have vision, uh, not just see physically, but have vision for my family. Thank you for the scripture. Like just, I just think about all the things that I, I'm hopeful for and thank him in advance and the things that I'm thankful for in the moment. And I, it, it, it literally takes 45 seconds. And then I can start my day at least with uh, that posture of being um, thankful. Um, and, you know, I think, I think thankfulness really breeds humility and that's where God calls us to be, you know, like God calls us to have humble spirits and um, all my best decisions have been made in a posture of humility. And I think that's important to recognize um, with, you know, this, this balance between the humility of taking me out of it and the confidence of having God speak into it, right? Like there, there is that balance, right? And, that takes uh, practice just like anything. Um, and so there have been plenty of times when I thought it was God and it really wasn't. It was me just imposing my my my, my thing in it. And God would say, no, 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 like, I'm going to let this fail or I'm going to intervene through another person. And then, you you know, there's sensitivity to the Holy Spirit's there and it helps you make good decisions. And but if you start the day with that posture of just gratitude and humility, then God, God has the freedom to kind of move in and out. Uh, of your life in, in real powerful ways, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I find it important also to start the day with gratitude and, and prayer. And if you start your morning right, the rest of the day goes so much better. So you had a real, I'll call it the pit when you were in the minor leagues. You know, the blessing was they said, go out there and, you know, just keep throwing that knuckleball and figuring it out. Drawback is, is a person that, you know, wants to succeed, wants to win, that wants to be competitive with a junk knuckleball that sometimes floats in there and then gets smashed over the, the outfield wall night after night after night. And the manager coming out saying, I see you in five days. Yeah. I don't really want to do this five days from now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that's where that stuff, that talk. So if, if tox, if the toxic side 
is stubbornness, then the healthy side is being relentless, right? Like if, if those are the two. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I, I'm, I was thankful for a lot of times for just the relentless, relentlessness of just pursuing my craft, you know, like I, you know, I, uh, yes, I was stubborn, but at the same time, if it weren't for that trans kind of, kind of manifesting in the form of relentlessness, then I would not have ever achieved, uh, some of the things I was able to, um, just cause I loved the work, like I said before, and I wanted the work. And so, you know, my spirit was broken over and over and over again, because would be, I would just, I would give up tons of runs and it was hard and, you know, but I always had the latitude to fail. I had people like that said, Hey, we know it's going to be hard. We know you're going to fail. So, so use this as a canvas to try to figure it out. And so I always had the hope on the backside of that, that I was going to get another opportunity. Mm-hmm. I was a God, you know, God gave me that gift. Um, you know, and so I was, I got a little bit better every single time. So I gave up 10 runs the first time and gradually got better and better until I got an opportunity away from the Rangers organizations with the C- Seattle Mariners. Um, I, and I was, I pitched really well in the minor leagues for the Milwaukee Brewers and in 2007 when I won the PCL pitcher of the year. And that kind of catapulted me into a position where I started to get some real time as, as a knuckleballer with multiple teams ending with the, you know, 2010, the New York Mets where it really, it really trans, you know, transformed. And when things were rough in the minor leagues, you and your wife, I would say on your side came home, bad attitude and. Oh, it was rough. Yeah, it's rough. Um, you know, I I had you know really made poor decisions around dealing with the pain of not being good. Um, whether it was you know talking in a way I shouldn't to my wife or you know whatever. Like I I had jeopardized my marriage in a lot of different ways, and you know she <clears throat> she was so loyal and so loving and you know so tolerant. Uh, just really exemplified you know what God talks about in scripture of what love really is. And it, it really helped me. It helped me to see what it like. She, she lived it out in a lot of ways that were motivating for me uh, because it matched up perfectly with scripture. Like true love keeps no record of wrongs. Are you kidding? Like that's yeah. just, I mean, to live that out and to see that lived out, you talk about a, you know, a transforming motivational uh, behavior, man, that, and and that's what she offered me, you know, like that was her, her gift to me. One of her gifts to me was, was that. And so, you know, I had, I had wrecked my marriage in a lot of different ways by my own doing. And, and she still was stalwart in her belief that I was a good man and had a lot to offer. And she was in it with me and she had made a commitment under covenant with God to, to uh, stick in it. And she did, and I did, and, you know, we have a, a good marriage. And I'm so thankful for that. That's one of those things I wake up in the morning when I put my feet on the ground and just say, thank you for that, you know? Um, but it's not perfect. I mean, no marriage is, you know? Um, and that's the beauty. Like we both recognize that. I think that's, that's part of our solution to things is to understand that we're both broken and in need. And, uh, if you have that posture, it puts you right back into a place of humility and you can be vulnerable and you can say, you're sorry. So many of us, I think when I work with other people, you know, just sharing my story, they have a real hard time with those words. I'm sorry, or forgive me. Like the, the repentant heart is a hard heart to come by because our, our, we're in constant com- conflict with wanting to be right all the time and how good it feels to be right and wanting to, you know, Lord that over people. So I think our, our most tender times in our marriage have been times when 
we've been <clears throat> both broken before each other. And whether it's arguing about the kids or money or whatever, like a real life arguments, that's just life, you know, and me saying, Hey man, I, I'm so sorry. I raised my voice and I shouldn't have, I was just passionate about this and, you know, um, forgive me. I'm going to try to work on that. Like that, that's intimacy. And that's what is really, really hard, especially for someone like me. Like she, she had a lot, she was really, that was one of her gifts. You know, she grew up in a real stable family with loving parents and had it modeled for her how to be kind in a marriage and what that looked like in a healthy way. I did not have that. Like I, I grew up with uh, not a good model and I didn't know how to treat a woman and I didn't know how to treat a wife. And I didn't know the duties that I was called to scripturally. And, um, I had to learn all that. And I'm still learning that I'm still, still learning. learning. Yes. Yeah. And, and like the lifelong learner piece comes in, right. I mean, you, you, just like in my vocation, I, I'm, you know, Charlie, uh, Charlie Huff told me my very first lesson with him. He said, listen, man, he said, this is something that you're never going to master. So don't think of it in terms of mastering something. So whenever anybody at, says, hey, how did you master the knuckleball? I stop him right there and say, hey, man, it, it's an ongoing journey. Like I, I'm not, it's the same thing in marriage, right? Like I, there's no mastering in marriage. It's, it's a constant, it's a constant, it's the sharpest blade in God's holster on how to uh, cultivate you as a, as a Christian man, as marriage, I feel like, cause it's constantly asking you to lay your life down, like constantly, constantly. all the time. And that's okay. Like there's a lot of gifts in that. Uh, but that is his sharpest blade in my life is my marriage, right? Like he, he penetrates me to the core uh, with the tool of, of marriage. Yes. Yes. 100%. So at some point things got so rocky that I think the way you said it was Naturally, I decided to buy a vacant house in town so I could live separate from my wife. Well, no, I, I, we owned it already and we had, we were moving and I just said, you know, I just, this is so hard. I can't do it. Like, so I'm going to, I'm going to stay over here. You stay over there. Let's just, you know, and also, you know, she, she didn't want anything to do with me for a minute too. And I, I couldn't blame her. And so I, I was in that house sleeping in, there was like two pieces of furniture in it and you know, <laughs> going over and seeing my kids a little bit off and on just when I, whenever I could and still trying to get ready for a major league season, like all that was in, in flux and, you know, had a, the pastor of my church show up at my doorstep, you know, and just love on me, like nobody's business. And we started walking together and he, you know, slowly, but surely was helping me help teach me about what it meant to be a real husband and the model that I didn't have early in my life in my own story I was being given a gift of that by walking with other men who, what it looked like to do it differently. And that was a real transforming moment for me, for sure. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Journey of a Christian Dad podcast. Thank you guys for being a light. Shine that light out and let others see it. With you guys, part of this community, it helps me be accountable to you guys. It helps me be accountable to myself be accountable to God and Jesus. I hope you appreciated this episode and picked up some great things. Hope you like the challenge and hope you can execute on that challenge this week. I ask of you, please subscribe, share the show with others. Join us inside of the journey of a Christian dad on Facebook, inside our private community. Share that community with others. Have your buddies join, have other dads that are looking to grow in their faith grow as spiritual leaders of their family. As we engage in our journey and be intentional with it, we can help others grow theirs as well. We thank you again for listening. We thank you for all your reviews. Look forward to reading a review of yours on a future show. So, dear God, 
Thanks for blessing all of us and thanks for drawing us closer to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Have fun, guys.